Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Greetings, comrades, and welcome to Eastern Border. Today, I want to talk to you about Belarus. It's specifically important because there was a nice interview between uh, President of Belarus, or dictator, as would be more fitting in this case, Mr. Lukashenko, who, by the way, uh, is genuinely somewhat popular there. And the leader, I would say that, his technical office is general editor of the Echo Moskvi radio station, Benediktov, but that's also not the correct, proper, real way how to name him. But yeah, this interview revealed a lot of things, and there's a lot to talk about modern-day Belarus in the second part of this episode. And I think that this country is not widely known outside of Eastern Europe. And even here, you know, we um, in Latvia hear quite a lot about Estonia and Lithuania that we work with a lot and communicate with. And then there's Sweden and Finland next door, which is also close, and Poland, obviously. But Belarus is somewhat of an outlying thing, and it's not very well known at all. So, with the recent events, and the fact that 2020 might bring us the end, final end, of this country, if uh, things go according to how my sources have told me, that could um, establish a major shift in all of Eastern Europe and politics in general, and would basically legitimize Putin's claims for further power. And there's a lot of things going on there. So I thought that this is exactly the right moment where to do kind of an explanation of what Belarus is, and how it's been made, and what's going on there. Well, first, I want to give you a short history of the country. Because this area of Belarus today, which is sandwiched in between Latvia, Lithuania, Russia, Poland, and Ukraine, and it's, you know, you would think most people that I've asked about on the internet about this, where they think Belarus is there, you know, we have issues with in Latvia where people think that we're, you know, Russians, but uh, Belarus is even more complicated because this area was one of the earliest to be inhabited by the Slavic people, you see, and Belarus as a nationality, as people, they're uh, way closer to earlier Slavs than even, well, what we now know today as Russia. Belarus is an older country with um, more historic legitimacy to be the original birthplace of the Slavic nations uh, at all and has a larger claim because the Belarusian people, people of Belarus, there's a difference here as well because, you know, they have their own language, which is quite different from Russian, actually. Kind of like on the level of Ukrainian. See, the thing is that Belarus is older than Russia by a long shot and has a kind of a deeper history and now it's threatened. But yeah, this area was one of the earliest to be inhabited by the Slavs who settled there between the 6th and 8th century current era. The early Slavic tribes 
the Dragovici, Radimici, Krivici, from which, by the way, the name for Russians and Latvian, Krievi, comes from. It's the Krivich tribe of the Slavic peoples that we name Russia after. And uh, there's a fourth tribe that lives in Belarus, Drevlyanje. Yeah, these guys had formed local principalities, such as those as Pinsk or Turov or Polotsk or Slutsk and Minsk by the 8th to 9th century. And this is also the case where we uh, learn a lot about the Baltic tribes as well, because 8th and 9th centuries is where the Viking era starts and where our uh, little tribal peoples come onto the global map. We're kind of discovered by the rest of Europe at this point. And all of these Slavic tribes in Turov, Polotsk, Slutsk, and Minsk, and, well, centered around these places, they came under uh, kind of this rulership of the old Kievan Rus, you know, run by Minsk, by the Knez Lodimir and everything, and that was the first East Slavic state that began in the middle of the 9th century. The regional economy was basically kind of a primitive agriculture, kind of shifting around on burnt-over forests, which is the traditional parts in this era, in this era and this region, because, well, were super forested, mostly by pines. And, well, obviously they did the same thing as we did, hunting and, and you know, beekeeping and everything. The, the Belarus play a central part along the trading rivers. They have the Dnieper, which was a part on the water road from Constantinople through Kiev to Novgorod and to the Swedish parts. That's the part where Varangians kind of also traveled from Sweden to Constantinople. Right now, basically, it goes through the territory of Latvia and Belarus, and then in Belarus it switches to Dnieper, because that is literally where in the Altai Mountains, Daugava ends, or Zapadnoye Dvina, as they call it, and Dnieper starts. And that just leads you straight to the Black Sea. It's part of the water route between the Black Sea and uh, the Baltic Sea. So, well, Belarus contains the Altai Mountains and the beginnings of both Dnieper and Daugava. So, Riga is built on the entry of Daugava in the Baltic Sea. And Minsk is quite close to this shifting point between Daugava and Dnieper. So, well, that's how they built themselves up. And, yeah, trading settlements always obviously multiplied and grew because of all this, well, Viking era thing, because, you know, raiding and trading was commonplace, and that's where we got also all of our coins from the Arabic era. And many of the towns of present-day Belarus had been founded by the end of the 12th century. Well, that's what also crusaders come into this area at this point, because Belarus was kind of less attached to them, because they were orthodox at this point. But still, they, with Crusader activity happening next door in the Baltics, they had some fair share of fights with them as well. And yeah, two of the earliest mentioned towns of Slavic foundation, Polotsk and Turov, first appeared in the historical documents in the years 862 and 980, respectively. Brest, which was formerly Brest-Litovsk, which is an important town when it comes to World War I, and the formation of the Soviet Union general, is first recorded in 1019, and Minsk is first recorded as being there in 1067. So both of these uh, cities are now, well, they're older than Riga, which is a kind of a review point for me, because Riga was officially founded in 1201. But that's a whole other story, because obviously once the Christians arrived, yeah, you know, they didn't really count any of our pagan towns as being noteworthy, and they only counted the beginning of the city since, well, Christianity arrived in the region. 
even though Riga had been a major trading port throughout the 8th and 9th centuries as well, but yeah, you know, not like anyone cared that much about all this situation. Now, moving on forward between all these uh, Slavic tribes there, second part happens when the Mongols arrive. The overthrow of Kiev by the Mongol invasion of 1240 kind of caused the dissolution of the Kiev and Rus in general, and many Belarusian towns were, like, laid waste to, because, well, the Mongols got there, and that's also where they stopped, because, well, even though Belarus has a lot of forests, and is quite similar in climate and, well, everything else, like lay of the land, to the Baltics, yeah, Baltics have a lot more forests and swamps, and as Mongols, if you listen to Dan Carlin, those series are great, by the way, highly recommended, as you might know that, well, they're just horse people, and horse people are not not really, really good in heavily forested places or in swamps, which was the case here, so they kind of stopped at the border of the Baltics, but they pretty much ran over Belarus as well. So, most Belarusian towns became dependencies of the Golden Horde, they were burned down and sacked. This was the westernmost portion of the Mongol Empire. And, well, as the Baltics were basically untouched, then over the next 150 years, as we were in Latvia and Estonia absorbed by the Livonian Order, the Duchy of Lithuania prospered. The Grand Duchy of Lithuania, I'm sorry. And they expanded, and they absorbed much of the Belarusian population. Under Lithuanian rule, however, the conquered regions retained a large degree of autonomy because, well, Lithuanians and Belarusians are very different people. Lithuanians are Baltic, Belarusians are Slavic, obviously. Throughout the 13th and 14th centuries, the Lithuanian state grew, encompassing the city of Smolensk, which is now in Russia, and the lands eastward to the neighborhood of Moscow and southward of Kiev and the shores of the Black Sea. Lithuania grew big. Lithuania at its height has been bigger than France even, which is, well, pretty huge by European standards. During the, uh, this epoch of Lithuanian kind of domination, the Belarusian language and nationality, well, sort of formed, because as the tribes united. Same with us in Latvia with the Livonian order. And then we come to the era of the Commonwealth. I have to mention that, because Belarus plays a huge part in this whole Commonwealth story. See, a Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth was formed as a personal union between the Lithuanian and Polish ruling houses, which happened under the Jagiellon dynasty. In 1386, when Lithuanian Grand Duke Jogaila married the Polish Queen Jadwiga and taking the name of Vladislav II Jagiello, became the King of Poland. Roman Catholicism became the official religion of the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, but the peasantry remained, well, in Belarus, overwhelmingly orthodox, while it was still pagan, mostly in Lithuania. And they were also given kind of, you know, free linen shirts for converting, and that was kind of beneficial, so a lot of people in these parts just converted multiple times in various villages to get more of those parts of clothing. This is kind of unsourced here because it comes from a walking tour through Vilnius, what I went to, but have, like, nice reasons to believe that uh, to be kind of at least close to reality. So, between the Polish-Lithuanian realm and the rising power of the Muscovites, the Grand Principality of, Principality of Moscow, there developed an, kind of an interesting and bitter struggle for land and influence. During the 15th and 16th centuries, Smolensk and Lithuania's easternmost lands were lost to Russia, although the Belarusian population remained largely under Lithuanian control. Three sets of laws, known as the Lithuanian Statutes, codified civil and property rights in Lithuanian-controlled lands in the 16th century. 
1557, a far-reaching agrarian reform plan was instituted, introducing the three-field crop rotation system of agriculture and, by the way, which is interesting, changing the obligations of peasants to landowners. The serfdom was not as brutal in Belarus as it was elsewhere. The system initially imposed on crown estates was rapidly adopted in the properties of the nobility. It remained in operation with little modification until the 20th century, by the way. Seriously, it was just a crazy thing which just worked with the uh, relations of the peasants and the uh, nobles. The combined effects of the changes reduced the peasants, who previously had retained at least some freedom to migrate, to full serfdom. However, this serfdom was not as brutal as it was in mainland Russian Empire. Livonia had even more freedoms, even though we also had our fair share of serfdom. Belarus had it worse, but Russia had it, like, even worse than that. So it's kind of crazy. The Union of Lublin in 1569, made Poland-Lithuania a single, federated state. Although Lithuania retained the title of Grand Duchy and its code of laws, its western province, Podlasia, which had been heavily settled by Polish colonists, was ceded to Poland, as were the steppe lands and Kiev, out of all things. Among the Belarusian population, a mainly Polish-speaking Roman Catholic aristocracy developed, but the peasantry, on the whole, was orthodox, as they were since 8th century, basically. In 1596, the Union of Brest-Litovsk signaled an attempt to unify the Orthodox and Roman Catholic churches in the Polish-Lithuanian state, combining acknowledgement of papal supremacy with the Orthodox rites and traditions. This new Eastern Rite Church made some limited headway, particularly among Belarusians and Ukrainians. However, it later came under pressure from Russian and, much later, Soviet authorities. Well, for obvious reasons, because Soviets fought against any forms of religion which resulted in the conversion of some of its membership to orthodoxy. Meanwhile, the rule of Polish landowners was often heavy and unpopular, and many Belarusians, especially those opposed to joining the Eastern Rite Church, fled to the steppe lands to become Cossacks. Obviously, due to the situation, large-scale Cossack-led revolts occurred in the mid-17th century. Basically, the biggest ones happened from 1648 to 1654, but the Belarusian lands remained under Poland until the second half of the 18th century where they were conquered by Russians. Economic development was really slow, especially in the extensive Pripyat marshes. You might know of Pripyat if you listen to my Chernobyl episodes, but that's kind of the midpoint between Minsk and Kiev. The Belarusian population was almost entirely engaged in agriculture, while basically all the trading and businesses were in the hands of Polish and Jewish peoples. And then, then came in the rule of Russians. Hey guys, Annette here. Glad to have you with us for a new episode of the Eastern Border. As always, a big thank you to our Patreons. If you're not a Patreon and would like to become one, head over to patreon.com slash the Eastern Border to find out how you too can support our show. To keep up to date with all things Eastern Border, follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And don't hesitate to send us a message with your comments and questions. That's it for now. Thank you for listening and see you online. This podcast brought to you by RussianVoiceOvers.eu. Enjoy! So, carrying on. At some point in 1772, the first partition of Poland happened, where Catherine II of Russia acquired the eastern portion of present-day Belarus. 
including the towns of Vitebsk, Malinov, and Homel. The second partition in 1793 gave Russia Minsk and the central region, and in 1795 the third partition incorporated the remainder into the Russian Empire. Under the Russian rule, the area was divided administratively into the governorships, which doesn't have provinces, of Grodno, Minsk, Moglinov, Vilnia, now Vilnius in English properly, but it's Vilnia still, and Vitebsk. Until the formation of the Belarusian Soviet Socialist Republic in 1919, Belarusian history was basically tied to the course of events in the Russian Empire and Revolutionary Russia. Napoleon crossed the region in his advance on Moscow in 1812 and again during his retreat. One of the heaviest battles of Napoleon's Russian campaign took place as French troops retreated across the Bjerezna River. In the 19th century, small-scale industries largely based on local supplies began to grow in Belarusian towns. Among them were timber-working, glass-making, and, along the rivers, boat-building. Following the emancipation of the serfs in the 1960s, well, exactly 1961, to be honest, the tempo of industrialization increased somewhat, particularly with the introduction of railways beginning in the 1880s. Nonetheless, nonetheless, the generally poor economic conditions resulted in considerable immigration, especially from the rural areas. In the 50 years before the Russian Revolution of 1917, nearly 1.5 million people left the provinces within which present-day Belarus is located. Most of the immigrants went to the United States or Siberia, with more than 600,000 moving to the latter between 1896 and 1915. The first attempt to establish a Marxist party in Russia took place in Minsk in 1898, when a small congress laid the foundation for the Russian Social Democratic Workers' Party, which we have been mentioning on the show, well, constantly, basically. During World War I, heavy fighting between the Germans and Russian Empire took place in this province, with a lot of destruction following in its wake. Carrying on with the Russian Revolution, in which a provisional government replaced the collapsed Russian monarchy, which was later then overthrown, obviously, but... What happened was that over there in Belarus, the Brest-Litovsk peace treaty with Germany was signed on March the 3rd, 1918, under which Russia lost a lot of its territory, while causing the independence of the Baltic states as well. Under the terms of this short-lived treaty, Russia gave up part of the present-day Belarus, along with Ukrainian and, as I said previously, Baltic lands to Germany. With Germany's subsequent defeat by the Russian's Western Allies, the terms of Brest-Litovsk were... Um, cancelled, but we still didn't really want to go back to the Russian Empire. Belarus, however, had a bit of a different story. See, Belarusian nationalist and revolutionary stirrings had been, like, observed at least since the Russian Revolution of 1905, when peasants joined the uprising against the monarchy. The creation of a Belarusian state proceeded with fits and starts between the turmoil of World War I and the Russian Civil War, which basically succeeded the revolution of 1917. In 1918, while most of the region was occupied by the German army, an independent Belarusian Democratic Republic was declared. With the withdrawal of German troops after the war, the Bolsheviks announced the formation of the Belarusian Soviet Socialist Republic on January 1, 1919. The Republic's territorial integrity was quickly breached. Beginning in April that year, troops of newly reconstituted Poland advanced eastward to the Brzezina River, only to be thrown back again in 1920. Hostilities between Russia and Poland ended with the treaty 
in March 181921, signed in Riga, known as the Treaty of Riga, I'm really happy that our diplomats figured that one out, which divided the area of Belarus between Poland and Soviet Russia along the lines of the first partition of Poland. The Belarusian SSR was one of the four founding republics of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, established on December 30th, 1922. The Belarusian SSR grew to the east in 1924, when Soviet authorities transferred the regions of Polotsk, Vitebsk, and Orsha, and Mogilyov, which had large Belarusian populations, from the Russian Soviet Federated Socialist Republic to the Belarusian one. Gomel and Rehitsa followed in 1926. Beginning under the regime of Uncle Joe, uh, Joseph Stalin to those who are new listeners, nationalism was heavily discouraged in the Soviet Union, and the Belarusian SSR, like the other republics, was closely controlled. With the commencement of the first five-year plot in 1928, new industries were established in Minsk and other leading towns. In the 1930s, purges took the lives of a lot of dissidents, intellectuals, and others, well, basically everyone in Belarusian SSR. Following the German attack on Poland in 1939, together with the Russian attack on Poland, and the signing of the Molotov-Ribbentrop and the aggression pact between Stalin's Soviet Union and Hitler's Germany, which divided Eastern Europe into German and Soviet spheres of influence, the USSR attacked Poland from the east. Soviet troops occupied the area up to the Bug River, and including the Blyatosk region, home to the substantial Belarusian population. Western Belarusian territory that had been surrendered to Poland the Treaty of Riga was reinstated as part of the Belarusian SSR. The German invasion of the Soviet Union in 1941 overran the Belarusian SSR, although the garrison of the Brest fortress made a prolonged and courageous stand. During the German retreat in 1944, there was heavy fighting in many areas of the Republic, with major battles near Vitebsk, Borisov, and Minsk. German occupation and retreat produced widespread devastation and loss of life. The death toll has been estimated at about one-fourth of the population of the Soviet Belarus. At the end of the war, a treaty between the USSR and Poland returned Western Belarus to Soviet hands. The Polish population was forcibly deported en masse to Poland. With the establishment of the United Nations in 1945, the Belarusian SSR was given a seat in General Assembly in its own right, despite its status as a constituent republic of the USSR. It was given the same rights together with Ukraine and Russia because those were the biggest republics in the Soviet Union. The post-war five-year plan was devoted to the reconstruction of war damage, an aim that it largely achieved. Thereafter, further industrialization took place with an increasingly rapid growth of the major towns. The population of Minsk reached a million by the early 1970s. Many small towns and the population of a number of rural areas correspondingly declined. The accident at the Chernobyl nuclear power station and I use the term accident very loosely here, in 1986 contaminated about one-fifth of the neighboring Belarus with long-lived radioactive materials. The contamination necessitated the evacuation of several areas in Belarus, some of which had not been repopulated more than 20 years after the accident. Moreover, this case led to an increased incidence of cancer among Belarusians, particularly typhoid cancer in children. The expenditure of government funds required to address the children's, the accident's environmental and health consequences continued way into the 21st century. Which is quite crazy, if you think about it. Then, Belarus gained independence. Sort of. This is where we finally come down to our buddy, Lukashenko. So, following Soviet leaders Gorbachev's old friend Gorby, uh, kind of, you know, start of perestroika in middle 1980s, 
The build rush of the SSR acted somewhat less actively than other Soviet republics to break away from the Soviet Union. Although there was a steady growth of kind of separatist feelings there. Amid the crisis of central authority in the USSR in the early 1990s, I'm talking about the August Putsch here, the Belarusian SSR declared sovereignty in July 27, 1990, and independence on August 25th in 1981, which is just three days after the August Putsch. With the collapse of the Communist Party rule and the dissolution of the Soviet Union in the wake of the failed coup against Gorbachev, the Belarusian SSR changed its name to the Republic of Belarus and joined the Commonwealth of Independent States, a free association of sovereign states that were formerly part of the Soviet Union, which we markedly did not in Latvia. Legislative elections in Belarus in 1990 resulted in the communist-dominated Supreme Soviet that delayed the implementation of market economy, and kind of waited for about three years just struggling around there to adopt a new constitution in March 1994. That document created the office of president, to which the very much so pro-Russian Alexander Lukashenko was elected in July 1984, notably him being the only deputy of the higher council of Belarus that voted against independence in the Soviet era. Legislative elections followed in 1985, but owing to the strictures of the Belarusian electoral system, to be seated, rounds of voting were required before a quorum was reached in December 1985, and even then, more than 60 seats remained vacant. Many members of the legislature were independents. At this point, largest voting bloc was not a political party per se, but a group that supported Lukashenko, who increasingly sought to dominate the Supreme Soviet. In the referendum in November 1986, the legitimacy of which was extremely disputed everywhere, Lukashenko won approval of a constitutional change, a referendum initiated by the opposition, by the way, that granted him near-absolute power and extended his five-year term. The parliamentary opposition sought to impeach Lukashenko and to eliminate the office of the president, but the opposition's efforts were countered by Lukashenko's signing of the revised constitution, which closed the Supreme Soviet and created a new legislative body, from which the opposition was excluded with greatly reduced powers. In contrast to much of the Central and Eastern Europe at the time, Lukashenko set Belarus on a course of isolation from the West, maintaining the economics of market socialism. And yet, even today, Belarus is the only country of Europe that still has both the KGB and Kolkhoz. They haven't even changed the names, and the Lenin statues haven't even been removed. Support for the government's efforts to establish close ties with Russia was widespread, but not without opposition. In 1997-1999, Belarus entered the Union State, a political and economic union with Russia that had initially been negotiated with Russian President Boris Yeltsin. And the important part is that at this point, Lukashenko was super popular both in Belarus and in Russia, and he was viewed as more of a Putin figure today. And he thought to gain from this politically because the prime candidate of ruling this union state, if it had come to exist soon after, would be Lukashenko instead of any Russian ruler, because Russia at this point in Yeltsin's era was in a deep political decline. That is the reason why he signed this deal. Now, although disputes arose between the two countries over the Union's impact on issues such as defense and natural resources, because Belarus has no oil or gas, they agreed on the goal of common currency, an idea first broached in the early 1990s. 
With Belarus firmly hitched to Russia's fortunes, its economy responded accordingly, for example stumbling in 1998 as a result of Russia's financial collapse. Though Russia had long been Belarus's main trading partner, the volume of the trade expanded in the early 21st century as Belarus experienced more industrial growth. However, at this very time, Belarus, which has only been electing Lukashenko and pro-Lukashenko forces with less than honest elections, so to speak, but they still have at least some resemblance of it, and unlike in Russia at this point. Yeah, they still are very much super dependent there, and they have nothing going on for them. A lot of international observers were extremely critical of the Belarusian government at the end of the essentially authoritarian rule Lukashenko adopted beginning in 1986. Relations with the EU were particularly strained. Widely considered the most oppressive regime in Europe at the time, in 1986 that is, which is an important case here, Belarus staged undemocratic elections, suppressed political opposition and silenced the press completely. Leaders of the political opposition often agitated from exile, while anti-government figures who arose within Belarus were occasionally beaten, jailed, or just disappeared, seized by the authorities, and never heard from again. The 2001 presidential elections were not recognized as free and fair by Western observers, and in October 2004, Lukashenko sponsored another successful referendum that allowed the president to serve for more than two terms. In 2006, the United Democratic Forces, a group of opposition parties and non-governmental associations, backed pro-democracy candidate Alexander Milinkevich in the presidential race, but Lukashenko was re-elected with nearly 83% of the vote according to the official count. Denouncing the results, opposition groups within Belarus, as well as international observers, accused the president of wielding his exceptional powers during the campaign to manipulate the media and intimidate his opponents. Indeed, it was reported that some members of the opposition campaign teams had been detained and beaten. Protesters camped out in the public square in Minsk for several days following the election, but this and other demonstrations were broken up by the police. Other opposition presidential candidate Alexander Kazulin was arrested at one such demonstration and imprisoned. In September 2008, parliamentary elections by the government reported a high voter turnout, with about three-fourths of eligible voters participating, but the opposition delegates did not win any seats. Same as in the elections this year, mind you. International monitors declared that the election could not be considered free and fair, and protests again were staged in the center of Minsk. Meanwhile, beginning in 2002, Belarus' relations with Russia had deteriorated, partly over the desire of Gazprom, which is, you know, the main gas company there, to raise the price of gas exported to Belarus to world levels. Another source of discord was Russia's military conflict with Georgia in 2008, as Lukashenko failed to follow Russia's lead in recognizing the dependence of the breakaway Georgian republics of Abkhazia and South Ossetia. Nevertheless, Belarus remained into the Russian orbit through its membership in the Russian-backed regional organizations, including the Collective Security Treaty Organization and the Eurasian Economic Community, as well as, to a lesser extent, the Union State and the CIS. And now we come to the 2010s. And this is where Lukashenko has still done things which are considered weird because previously all the protests against him have been violently suppressed and damaged. Yet now, things are stirring up in Belarus, which is why I even made the episode in the first place. So, what has happened is that Mr. Lukashenko met with Putin and uh, recognized 28 out of 31 integration points, the roadmap, 
for the integration of Belarus into Russia. He was super aggressive on commenting on this issue. He was also stating that, hey, what about Russia would join Belarus instead? And for the first time in years, he did not fight against uh, any protesters which have been brutally oppressed and arrested in Belarus for a long, long time. He was the leader of a kolkhoz, after all. He's now 65, and he's kind of excelled as a tactician and survivor. He's kind of been swinging from one existential crisis to the next, and Lukashenko has always found a way to emerge from any negotiations unscathed and, well, stronger than before. He's balanced between Russia and Europe. He did join the Union State, he was very pro-Soviet Union, but refused to host Russian military bases, and he does not recognize Crimea. He's benefited from massive oil and gas preferences, amounting to tens of billions of dollars from Moscow, but he negotiated a separate trade partnership with China. He's a crazy guy, but that's about a change, because Putin is basically finally cracking down on him. And there are rumors that a nice little coup is going to happen there, against which people protested, because my sources tell me that Lukashenko's era might come to an end, and that the good old Batka, as he's known in these parts, could finally be done for. As independent rights... There is a growing sense that in negotiations with Vladimir Putin, Mr. Lukashenko might finally have met his match. They had a news conference, a separate one for Lukashenko and separate one for Putin, and Putin in his one seemed to issue an ultimatum. Belarus would get no gas discounts while union building was incomplete. But in the same time, Lukashenko from Belarus stated that they have a massive trade deficit like United States and China, and he's been balancing all this out, but... You can see from the actions of Goshenkov, the president of Belarus, how he's been trying to struggle through all the situation, how he's in panic right now, and how he's becoming even more paranoid. Lukashenko is in a way worse situation than Russia because he's running a regime which is at least as much, if not even more, dictatorial than Putin's one, yet he lacks a lot of the power and many of the resources available to Mr. Putin, so... Not like he has that many choices available to him. Therefore, he has to basically figure out how to collaborate and how to figure things out on his own and, and how to work in between the lines with Putin and with all of his buddies, you see. So Lukashenko has been basically manipulating what he could and what he couldn't and he has been trying his best on working out how to do all the balancing acts, but he's right now, according to my own sources, totally afraid of the KGB. He's afraid of what's going to happen to him. And the Belarusian people, well, they have noticed. And uh, there have been protests. An opposition leader recently reported that an attempted poisoning had happened an opposition leader in Belarus, and uh, he told journalists that he experienced a sudden and severe allergic reaction which caused his throat to swell and obstruct his breathing. And that was a strange kind of experience and everything, because opposition protesters have been arrested for so many times in Belarus, and right now there have been, like, more active protests happening, but there's a real chance that Belarus will not survive through 2020. I'm gonna talk about this in my 
the recap of the year episode later on, but um, it's getting kind of crazy. For example, last week, Yuri Gorovsky, a former Belarus Special Forces officer, went public with sensational claims that he took part in special operations to assassinate Lukashenko's rivals two decades ago, which is kind of crazy. And Statkevich said the revelations came as no surprise to opposition leaders like himself. Gorovsky was undoubtedly, according to Statkevich, telling the truth, he said. But the reports which came on the eve of all these talks seem designed to deliberately weaken the Belarus president's negotiating position. So these reveals might as well have come from Putin himself, who finally allowed to speak. Because even the Russian opposition states that, uh, quote, perhaps he was put up to it by Russian sympathizers within the Belarusian government, or perhaps it was the Kremlin. Because, yeah, the level of support for the Belarusian opposition inside a country is very unclear, with many Belarusians understandably choosing to steer clear of politics because of all the arrests and beatings. At the same time, there are signs that this may be changing. In 2017, a controversial plan to introduce a charge on the unemployed for <clears throat> lost tax. Yeah, Belarus planned to introduce a specific charge on the unemployed people for the taxes they didn't pay. Yeah, that led to mass protests and radicalized the least part of the population. And obviously, all the situation with possibility of joining Russia, which Russia really wants, and Putin specifically has raised the stakes even further. This is just totally bizarre. And Mr. Putin now wants to get this done so that he can stay in power. And that is the craziest stuff that's happened so far at all. And the, the weirdest part is that even though Russian special forces were involved in causing some trouble for Lukashenko and that Lukashenko is our good old man from the Kolkhoz, the first protest action in 20 years that was not oppressed by the cops and that was not fought back and that was allowed to happen like you would expect in reasonable countries. Yeah, that happened in Belarus just on the eve of these talks. So we'll see how that happens, but I always uh, claim that I predict that Russia is going to split apart, but for one, I know that uh, Russia is going to change and... I don't really believe that Belarus is going to survive this. Anyway, next episode is going to be a nice little recap of uh, the decade, of the last year in the decade, and we'll be following Belarus through through this about over half an hour, maybe 40 minutes, exploration of what Belarus is, why should you care, because big things are about to happen there. And the Belarusian president himself has just recently stated that well, the West would totally not approve if Russia would annex Belarus, but he forgets that he has consciously been on the bad side of the Western world, especially since, well, he threw out a lot of Western countries' diplomats from his own state. Anyhow, and have a really happy new year. I have to keep you informed because 2020 looks way, way more interesting than I would like to. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the western border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. 
the eastern border salutes you. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The Dark Myths Void.